podcast a ski trivia podcast i'm your host jeff shaw you can follow me on twitter at powderhound skis you can also email me at powderhoundskitrivia at gmail.com for comments questions or corrections a gem of a ski area is located near the town of woodstock in central vermont it's small it's old it's slightly steep on the face trail it's under the radar It's historic. Other than knowing the name and peeking at the trail map the night before visiting, I knew little to nothing about the ski area. Now this gem was the sixth and final mountain visited on the way home after a loop of Northern Vermont back in January. And yes, that bold tone and exaggerated pause was intentional because the sixth ski area visited was none other than S6, formerly Suicide 6, now named Saskadena 6. New ski area name aside for just a moment, my ski day there was blessed with mild weather, a slalom racing championship serving as chairlift entertainment, a life-sized snow sculpture display, and nearly 100% open terrain. Even better, one of my best friends Scott, who now lives in Montana, was in town and joined me on the new to us slopes. Now, because the ski area is so compact, it is possible to ski the entire mountain in a day. So guess who did? And thanks again, Scott, who rewarded the feat by picking up the tab at the lodge. The music inspiration for the episode is The Connection by Fish, as the ski area's new name is connected to the past. A couple lyrics from this upbeat tune, then I change my direction. The new scary name, of course. One foot follows the other, one foot follows something new. The response by the community to the new name has been positive. Whether or not you have a new name horse in the race, I invite you to sit back, kick your feet up, relax, and enjoy the experience of everything skiing and riding powder hounds. things off we begin with a familiar segment tips up your read listen and watch recommendations fair warning just like last episode only one recommendation has to do with skiing first up a read recommendation this is an article by men's journal entitled a complete guide to understanding the tour de france now sure this world-renowned international bike race ended last week but it's still worth a mention Even if you cannot stand watching people ride bicycles on television, 
you have to appreciate the following. First, time. How much time would you spend on a typical bike ride? An hour? Maybe two? Four max? The 198 riders that comprise the field average 5.5 hours riding per day for 21 days with only two rest days mixed in. Second, fans. It's estimated there are 12 million live spectators. In addition, there is a audience of 3.5 billion in TV land. Now for comparison's sake, the television viewers for the 2018 World Cup, 1 billion, only 516 million of which watched for 20 consecutive minutes. Need another comparison? Super Bowl, 114 million viewers in the United States and roughly 30 to 50 million worldwide. Now granted, these numbers are over 21 days for the Tour de France, not a typical, say, three-hour event like the Super Bowl or World Cup match. But still, 3.5 billion is a lot of people. Third, total mileage. How many miles would you say you pedal on a typical bike ride? 10 miles? 15? Maybe 30 miles on a longer ride? How about an average of 103.5 miles per day for a grand total of 2,174 miles over three weeks, not even mentioning elevation, which is a whole nother piece of this. But perhaps the most impressive of facts is this one. The race first ran in 1903 to boost circulation of a daily newspaper of all things. But here's the kicker. Rather than the present race's 21 stages, in 1903 the race was only six stages with a total mileage of 1,509 miles, meaning the average stage was 250 miles per stage. Now, regardless of rest days in between, of which there were one to three based on the stage back in the day, that is an insane number for 1903 athleticism and equipment. So yeah, next July, Check out NBC Sports and join the 3.5 billion other viewers watching the 120th Tour de France. All right, moving on to a listen recommendation. This would be the Outside In podcast. The episode is entitled The First National Park. Did you know the first national park was designated by legislation in 1872? Now, if you did, you also probably know that the location was Yellowstone in Wyoming. While the topic may remind you of your high school history class, though more likely, it points out the seldom taught history of how the West was won by forcing Native Americans from their land. The conversation also debunks the myth of pure wilderness, otherwise referred to as pristine places or virgin land. The conversation also explores the fascinating dichotomy of preserving wild places, or conservation, while also ensuring human access to these places, aka outdoor recreation. At one point, the question is asked, can we love these wild places to death? In Yellowstone's case, it's creeping up on its 150th birthday and regularly has to turn away visitors because it's so popular. What does the future look like? So yeah, if you support the inseparable opposites of preserving wild places while also providing access for all, this is a podcast worth listening to. And finally, 
your watch recommendation. Now this is the only ski related content in Tips Up. That would be your Saskadena 6 Explained. Yes, the ski area put out a one minute, 24 second short video explaining the origins of the ski area and the connection, hey, there's that music inspiration again, to the Abenaki people. They also explain why it was so important to change the name now, despite an earlier attempt almost 50 years ago, and why the name Saskadena was chosen. The good news, the nickname S6 still works. Moving on to our featured segment, S6. If you ski or ride in Vermont, chances are you heard of Suicide 6, otherwise known as S6, ski area. If you never have, this is one of the last times you will hear that name uttered as the ski area retired the name earlier this summer. The resort sought to, quote, embrace the increasing awareness surrounding mental health and shares the growing concerns about the insensitive nature of the historical name. The feelings that the word suicide invokes have a significant impact on many in the community, end quote. Now, as you may recall, Palisades Tahoe, formerly Squaw Valley in California, and Big Moose Mountain, formerly Big Squaw in Maine, also retired their previous names as the word squaw is recognized as derogatory term for Native American women. So the name change in central Vermont probably isn't too surprising, especially given the less than positive image of the former name. Now you may be thinking, why Saskadena? The new name, Saskadena 6, was chosen to honor the indigenous Abenaki people, Vermont's native inhabitants, as the ski area exists on their occupied lands. In the Abenaki language, the word Saskadena means standing mountain. The name also symbolizes life-affirming values the ski area, the community, and the Abenaki people hold in common. People, place, and feeling of belonging. Quote, we stand for community, inclusion, adventure, and pure joy, end quote. The new name, Saskadena 6, allows the mountain to remain Essex, as it is commonly called. The new logo also draws on the ski area's history. It features a number six in a red ball, the color of which is slightly faded, which was first introduced to the mountain's branding in the early 1960s. Now, it's also worth mentioning that the ski area had changed its name once before. As I referenced a few moments ago, in the 1970s, the name was changed to just six to respond to local opposition to the insensitive name. This last and final push to change the name began in 2019 and was so top secret, only four people at the resort knew the name change was moving forward. The story of S6 is the story of early American lift surf skiing. Therefore, it's important to look back to see how we got here. Way back when, Woodstock, Vermont was, quote unquote, the cradle of winter sports. The town first promoted winter sports as early as 1892, the year the Woodstock Inn opened its doors. In 1910, the Woodstock Inn built a winter sports center which featured winter recreation like snowshoeing, ice skating, sleigh rides, and toboggan. Skiing would arrive a couple decades later, fueled by the Appalachian Mountain Club's snowshoe division. You heard that right, the 
snowshoe division. In fact, skiing arrived in the early 1930s. In January 1934, Wallace Bunny Bertram provided ski instruction to three White Cupboard Inn guests who commented to the inn owners, Bob and Betty Royce, that there had to be a better way to enjoy the sport of skiing than to climb up the hill for every run down. They asked the Royces to look into a tow they had heard about in Shawbridge, Quebec. Note to self, go to Shawbridge to find my ancestors. And even offered to put up funds to get one started. The first rope tow was built on Clinton Gilbert's pasture north of Route 12. While David Dodd ultimately built the original quote-unquote skiway, Bertram assisted with the operation during its first season, which is recognized as the first ski lift in the United States. By 1934 to the 1935 season, Bertram was able to secure an agreement with Gilbert to relocate the rope tow skiway on the present-day trail, the gully, also renaming the area the Woodstock Ski Hill. Prior to the 1936-1937 season, Bertram acquired 30 acres of land on the other side of the hill, also known as Perry Hill or Hill 6. An innocent joke that skiing straight down the steep pitch of Hill 6, the face trail, would be suicide was how the previous name came about and ultimately stuck. As Karen Lorenz wrote in the Great Vermont Ski Chase, the name Suicide 6 was one of many dramatic attention-grabbing names used to market skiing in that time. Other examples? Hell's Highway, Nosedive, and The Thunderbolt. Just one year after its opening, S6 held its first Fisk Trophy race. Now known as the longest-running ski race in North America, this race is lovingly thought of as a rite of passage for serious eastern ski racers. Past winners include Olympians, U.S. ski team members, and NCAA champions. The historical race is still held annually. Elizabeth Fisk, a ski runner's parent whose daughters became members of the women's U.S. ski team, donated the first silver trophy. Bertram also helped found the Woodstock Ski Runners Club, one of the oldest and continually operating ski club programs for children in the United States. Bertram pioneered standard races, the forerunner of the NASTAR races we still see today. He also held the first certification tests for U.S. ski instructors. A lot of firsts in skidum happened at S6 under Bertram. It was during these pre-war years that rope toes sprouted up on hills in the Woodstock area, also at Mount Tom, Prosper, Gilberts, and Bunny Slopes, and throughout the state of Vermont. Approximately 50 ski centers were active by 1941, and partially explains why there are around 120 lost ski areas in Vermont alone. As industrial machinery improved, so did recreational technology. Bertram purchased the pommel lift in 1954. This surface lift greatly increased the ski area's capacity. This innovation placed S6 in an entirely different league for skiers. In 1961, Bertram sold the ski area to Lawrence Rockefeller. In the decades to follow, Mr. Rockefeller began expanding the ski area to include chairlifts and J-bars 
similar to how it looks today. And yes, Lawrence Rockefeller is the grandson of Standard Oil founder John D. Rockefeller. In the summer of 1978, a new base lodge was built that helped the ski area gain resort status. It was certainly an upgrade from the old warming hut that previously stood as a ramshackle, pieced together shelter. That summer also saw the 1,200-foot pommel lift replaced by a new 1,650-foot double chair and increased snowmaking operations that covered two-thirds of the mountain. S6 was one of the first ski areas to embrace a new form of snow sliding, the name of which I will hold off on mentioning until the trivia questions. But in 1982, the national championship of this snow sliding sport was held at the resort. The event helped further develop the sport and bring it into the mainstream. Thanks, S6. The next era in the ski area's evolution, the 2010s, saw the installation of a quad chair. The lift further increased the capacity of the mountain, shorter lift ride times, the ability to hold more skiers and riders, and the lift also supports mountain bikers in the summer, of which there are now six miles of trails. Today, S6 is part of the Woodstock Resort Corporation, which also owns and operates the nearby Woodstock Inn and Resort. It's a fun, small, short, steep in places, affordable, and laid-back ski area. Let's get to know S6 a little bit better. Let's look at the mountain profile. Year opened, 1936. Summit elevation, 1,200 feet. Base elevation, 550 feet. Vertical drop, 650 feet. Lifts, three. Quad, double, conveyor. Skiable acres, 100. Trails, 24. Four green circles, 11 blue squares, five black diamonds, and four double black diamonds. Annual snowfall, 110 inches. Snowmaking, 50% on 50 acres. Terrain park and half pipe, yes. Night skiing, sorry. Uphilling, you got it. Operating hours, Wednesday through Sunday and daily during holiday periods. Average season, December through late March. And again, historical honors, as mentioned in the intro. First rope toe in North America, 1934. Longest running ski race in North America. Cost of entry, a lift ticket for an adult on a weekend or a peak day, $89. But it only gets less from there. And for just $49, you can ski there on a weekday. Season pass sales, they just started on August 1st. The adult pass is $500 before November 1st or $600 after. Child's Pass, $400 before November 1st or $500 after. There's also Senior, Young Adult, Super Senior, and Military Discount Season Passes. And Season Pass holders are also entitled to 15% off the retail shop and coaching. Also, the Pass Partnerships, it's on the Indie Pass. You get two days if you're an Indie Pass holder, or if you're an S6 Season Pass holder, you can, you can buy the Indie Add-on Pass for just $199 for adults or $99 for kids, and you have access to all of, what is it, 162 days of skiing on the Indie Pass. So again, in summary, S6, pure joy. That's their tagline. And if you have not skied S6, you should. Moving on to the trivia questions. 
Guess how many there are? Why? Six, of course. As always, I'll read through all questions once and then go through, go back through revealing the answers to each as well as provide additional commentary or interesting facts. All questions are multiple choice and open book. <laughs> Here we go. Question number one, the theme of which early history? Harry Hillman was a decorated Dartmouth College athlete and original Woodstock ski runner of the 1930s, who has a trail named after him at which New Hampshire ski area? A. Adidash, B. Cranmore, C. Tuckerman's Ravine, or D. Wildcat? Question number two, the theme of which lost ski areas? Lawrence Rockefeller, under Rock Resorts, owned two ski areas in central Vermont. One was S6. What was the other one, now defunct? A, Maple Valley. B, Mount Tom. C, Snow Valley. Or D, Timber Ridge. Question number three. The theme of which, sliding on snow. <laughs> in 1982, what new form of snow sliding did S6 embrace by hosting a national championship? A, snow biking. B, snowblading. C, snowboarding, or D, snurfing. Question number four, the theme of which, trail map. What S6 former owner has a trail named after him? A, Bertram, B, Rockefeller, C, Woodstock, or D, all of the above. Question number five, the theme of which, dignitaries. S6 was gaining a national reputation and growing in profile in the early 1950s. What federal office holder once visited the ski area? A. President B. Vice President C. Speaker of the House or D. Senate President Question number six, the theme of which trail map again. What candy bar is also the name of ski trails at S6? A. Milky Way, B. Payday, C. Snickers, or D. Three Musketeers. All right, pencils down. Let's reveal those answers. Question number one. Harry Hillman was a decorated Dartmouth College athlete and original Woodstock ski runner of the 1930s who has a trail named after him at what New Hampshire ski area? A. Adetash. B. Cranmore, C. Tuckerman's Ravine, or D. Wildcat? The answer? C. Tuckerman's Ravine. Notice I said New Hampshire ski area and not New Hampshire ski resort. Hillman's Highway is a run at Tuckerman's Ravine. According to the Powder Project, it's a diamond, it's quote-unquote difficult, with a consistent 40-degree pitch that runs out into the basin. The summit elevation is 5,100 feet. Now, interestingly, Hillman finished second to Alexander Bright at the first annual Woodstock Ski Runners Race at S6, again, now the longest-running ski race in the country. And a little bit more interestingly, Hillman's father, who shares the same name, was also a decorated athlete, having medaled in the 1904 Summer Olympics in track. Yeah. Question number two. <laughs> Rockefeller, Lawrence Rockefeller, under Rock Resorts, owned two ski areas in central Vermont, one of which, of course, is, was S6. What was the other one, now defunct? 
A, Maple Valley, B, Mount Tom, C, Snow Valley, or D, Timber Ridge? The answer, B, Mount Tom. Also located in Woodstock, should say Essex is in Pomfret, but next door to Woodstock. And again, not to be confused with Mount Tom, Massachusetts for those on the East Coast. Yeah, Maple Valley uh, A is in uh, Dummerston. Uh, you passed it on the way to Stratton Magic Bromley, the so-called Golden Triangle. Uh, Snow Valley is in Winall, uh, but interestingly, why I chose that ski area? As late as 2016, developers were trying to reopen the ski area. And D, Timber Ridge is actually on the east side of Magic Mountain and uh, boasts about an 800 vertical drop, 800 foot vertical drop. And apparently the trails are in sort of decent shape. Yeah, and actually Mount Tom, I found a poster for the 1960s season-ish. Quote, two ski areas, one ticket. So your purchase, your lift ticket would get you access to both S6 and Mount Tom in the same day. Now, Mount Tom did close in 1970. It did boast a 500-foot vertical drop and had one surface lift. It is now the Marsh Billings Rockefeller National Historic Park and it's used by sledders. Question number three. In 1982, what new form of snow sliding did S6 embrace by hosting a national championship? A, snow biking, B, snowblading, C, snowboarding, or D, snurfing? The answer, D, snurfing. Yeah, about 150 snurfers competed in the downhill and giant slalom events helping shape the sport we now know as snowboarding. Interesting side note, the history is somewhat ironic as my buddy Scott, who I mentioned in the intro, was snowboarding during our visit and found the long runouts on both sides of the mountain back to the quad pretty taxing. Like clip out and walk back to the quad, taxing. Sorry, Scott, but the snurfers back in the day must have been in better shape. <laughs> Question number four. What S6 former owner has a trail named after him? A, Bunny Bertram, B, Lawrence Rockefeller, C, Charles Woodstock, or D, all of the above? The answer, A, of course, it's Bunny, Bunny Bertram. Yeah, it's Bunny's Boulevard, it's a blue square, skiers left. And again, Bunny, what, what didn't he do? He was a ski instructor, team captain for the Dartmouth Ski Team. He was a chauffeur for the Fisk Races. He was elected to the U.S. National Ski Hall of Fame in 1981. And his fingerprints are all over the ski area. And uh, yeah, Lawrence Rockefeller didn't see a trail named after him. And Charles Woodstock made, up, made that name up. <laughs> now, interestingly, other trails named after people associated with the ski area, uh, Borden's Bowl, uh, it's a blue square. It actually is in uh, celebration of the Woodstock brothers, Leo and Alan, who built a ski jump at the Winter Sports Center. They staged jumping matches and ex exhibitions. They also fastened skis to a bobsled and staged wild jumps, as well as developed equipment later sold at Abercrombie & Fitch. All those efforts helped put S6 on the map, and thus the trail map honors their legacy and impact. There's also Pearlie's Peril and Pearson's Path, though none of them appear to be former owners of the ski area. Question number five. S6 was gaining a national reputation and growing profile. What federal office holder once visited the ski area? A. President. 
B, Vice President, C, Speaker of the House, or D, Senate President? The answer? B, the Vice President. That would be Nelson Rockefeller, Lawrence's older brother. Now, another dignitary would also visit S6, and his name was Sir Arnold Lunn, who developed Solemn and was a founding father of the Alpine events in the Olympics. He promoted the wide and steep face trail being the quote-unquote best natural slalom training hill he had ever seen. Question number six. What candy bar is also the name of ski trails at, or a ski trail at S6? A, Milky Way, B, Payday, C, Snickers, or D, Three Musketeers? The answer? A. Milky Way, it's a green circle, skiers right. Now, it should be noted that Double Dip is a blue square, skiers right, and is also a candy, a confectionery, with an edible dipstick. Now, admittedly, the Double Dip is the European version of Fun Dip, which you may be more familiar with, the flavored and colored powdered sugar candy, similar to Pixie Sticks. And yes, that candy comes in packets containing one powder along with one white candy stick. Now, on that silly and sugary note, thank you for playing. That is it. I hope this episode piqued your interest to visit Saskadena 6 or S6 this upcoming winter season. And yes, interest pun intended. See ya! Looks like it's 4 o'clock. Time to catch the last chair. Thank you for listening. Have a question, comment, or correction? Email me at powderhoundskitrivia at gmail.com. You could also follow me on Twitter at powderhoundskis. Better yet, subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast Manager, Verbal, Spotify, and Stitcher. Just type Powderhounds Podcast. Until next time, see you on the slopes, Powderhounds. Some attention Though I see